On today's episode, I want to talk about fear, particularly the fear of chemicals, sometimes called chemophobia. But before I get into that specific issue, I need to talk about fear in general, because fear can be an adaptive and positive thing when a threat is real and caution or avoidance is appropriate. And fear is something that's hardwired into our biology. And it's not just a human thing. Consider how we associate fear with certain animals, even to describe our own behavior. Timid as a mouse or scaredy cat or chicken. I would argue that fear exists beyond just the animal kingdom. When a corn seedling is starting to grow, it has molecular sensors that allow it to, quote, see, unquote, its surroundings by checking the ratio of visible and infrared light. And if that balance indicates that other plants are growing nearby, the corn sort of fears the competition and puts relatively more of its energy into growing taller so that it can capture more of the light. In another scenario, when a plant cell is infected with something like a fungus, it can go into sort of a fear mode, where it emits a chemical signal to the rest of the cells in the plants to ramp up their production of defensive compounds and enzymes. It's a phenomenon known as systemic acquired resistance. Even bacteria can have a fear response of a type in which they aggregate into clumps of cells to better survive some challenge about their growing conditions. So in some ways, Fear is an integral part of survival. But fear can also be debilitating when it's out of proportion to the threat. And unfortunately, fear can be used by some people to manipulate others. In anything from subtle marketing, to personal intimidation, to the methods of dictators or the tactics of terrorists. So while we acknowledge that fear can be an asset when there's a legitimate threat or danger, irrational fear can expressly harm someone and impact the quality of life. So let's be brave enough to take on this important topic. The importance of fear in our lives is pretty clear based on how often these things come up in pop culture. Many people like the adrenaline rush you can get from watching a horror flick. So there's a whole genre of movies to satisfy that urge. There are even fear-for-fun theme parks, like the Reign of Terror Haunted House, which is a popular tourist attraction in, in Thousand Oaks, California, with the sole purpose of making the patrons' hair stand on end and flee in panic. Fear is also a huge theme in music and cinema. There's a website called Ranker.com that lists the top 100 songs or movies about various topics. And their music and movie lists for the topic of fear or overcoming fear includes lots of familiar big hits with major stars. And they cover themes ranging from healthy fears to time when fear is a debilitating aspect of someone's life to examples of the courage to overcome fear where that's right. That overcoming sort of thing is featured in songs like I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. There are even examples where a song celebrates ignoring a fairly rational fear, like the Tommy Dorsey Frank Sinatra song, Where Angels Fear to Tread, Fools Rush In, about boldness to pursue love. Elvis did a famous version of that song. Perhaps one of the more famous calls to overcome fear is the speech made by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt for his inauguration in 1933. As the nation was slipping into the Great Depression, Roosevelt famously said, so, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, 
nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. A word that resonates from that quote is paralyze. Paralysis, or disproportionate fear, is also a common individual issue. For example, many people are afraid to speak in public, and that can limit their career. And there are times when fear causes us to freeze, limiting us from doing what might be best to resolve some situation. We use the words phobia or paranoia to describe that kind of fear that is out of proportion to the threat. A constricted space could be a real problem, but if someone takes that to an extreme, we say they're claustrophobic. One needs to be careful when on a high perch, but if that fear is out of proportion, we say a person is acrophobic. So with phobias, we're not saying there isn't any reason for caution or fear, just that what is being felt is excessive for the situation. For instance, my oldest granddaughter grew up in places like London with, with very little exposure to bugs, and so when she does come across one, she tends to overreact. When she comes to visit us, she often experiences bugs in my garden and reacts. In the text version of this podcast, there's a picture from a time when she saw a harmless little fly in the blossom end of an apple she had just picked in our yard. I think her expression is a good representation of exaggerated degree of fear or revulsion. Well, one of these phobias is termed chemophobia, the fear of chemicals. And actually, there's a, a good biological justification for being concerned about substances around us, because the natural world is not really a benign realm when it comes to its chemicals. And long before anyone understood anything about chemistry, humans learned that there can be hazardous things out there in nature. In his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, author Jared Diamond describes how impressed he was with the sophisticated oral knowledge base that a, quote, primitive, unquote, tribe in Papua New Guinea had about which plants were safe or unsafe to eat and which had medicinal properties. Well, since we are no longer hunter-gatherers, that kind of detailed knowledge about wild plants isn't important to most of us. But there are chemicals in our lives that are worthy of caution, including many common household cleaning products. So there is a healthy fear of or respect for chemicals, which we often speak of with certain standard warning symbols or the almost universal label language, keep out of the reach of children. We live in a world made of diverse natural chemicals, but in the last century or so, we have advanced to where we can make novel chemical compounds of our own. At first, this was widely considered to be a wonderful advancement. People of that day celebrated better living through chemistry when things like nylon became available. Lives and health improved as synthetic medications were developed. When Haber and Bosch figured out how to turn nitrogen from the air into forms that can fertilize plants, it became possible to feed more people better food. When Paul Mueller discovered the synthetic chemical DDT that could kill insects, it was initially celebrated because it was so effective at preventing insect-borne diseases of humans, and it seemed to be safe for people. But eventually things began to go wrong when there were unintended effects with some of these new chemistry breakthroughs. The German Nobel Prize-winning nitrogen inventor Fritz Haber later used the power of chemistry to create a terrifying new weapon, nerve gas. And as DDT was greatly overused, its longer-term effects on health and the environment were discovered. There's an extremely interesting webinar produced by the American Chemical Association called Chemophobia, How We Became Afraid of Chemicals and What to Do About It. Australian chemistry teacher and blogger James Kennedy takes an honest and probing look at how chemists and even chemistry teachers 
have failed to help the rest of society really understand this science enough to help keep the fear of chemicals at an appropriate and informed level. He cites the gap between knowing about the elements in the periodic table and understanding how that ties into the critical roles of chemistry in our lives. And he admits that always saying never eat in the lab gives the impression that all chemicals are dangerous. Fortunately, the realization of potential risks with some chemicals led to the establishment of regulatory agencies which now allow modern science to do what Jared Diamond described for that tribe in Papua New Guinea, to know how to separate the known and the new man-made chemicals into categories of safe, dangerous, or beneficial. For some time now, humans have had the scientific tools with which to evaluate the safety of chemicals, natural and synthetic, and we have laws to ensure that this knowledge is applied in such a way to keep us safe. But in Kennedy's webinar, he makes an interesting argument that the remarkable and beautiful image of Earthrise that came from the Apollo space missions, looking back at our planet Earth, had a profound effect on our modern preference for what we perceive as natural. It also reinforced suspicion about what is man-made. Whatever the reason, there is a strong appeal to nature that exists in modern society and extends well beyond chemicals. This, of course, has come hand-in-hand hand with extensive marketing of what is, quote, natural or even what is claimed to be chemical-free. So how are we to get it right when it comes to our spectrum of risk perception of chemicals? What tools do we have to avoid excessive fear in this realm? When you think about it in general, one of the most powerful tools against irrational fear has always been knowledge. The Dark Ages were a time when fear and superstition were widespread because of the loss of knowledge that came with the fall of Roman civilization. That darkness was alleviated by the recovery and advancement of knowledge that came with the Renaissance. I often say that we are now entered into the Dark Ages 2.0, because our current overwhelming access to information has actually made it harder for each of us to draw true knowledge out of that sea of inputs. This situation is further complicated by what has been termed the death of expertise. An example is someone like the food babe blogger who can have almost as much influence on what people believe as do relevant scientific experts. There's another confounding phenomenon that European scientist Marcel Kuntz has termed parallel science. There are some pseudoscience players out there with a definite agenda who design experiments to intentionally generate negative data on their topic of interest. Then they can get these results published in what are called pay-for-play journals that look like science, but which really don't have a meaningful peer review process. In most of these cases, the design of the activist experiment would never fly with a real science journal. Unfortunately, the press is often taken in by the sensationalism and the next thing you know, there's something out there on the internet which can be used by those who are actually trying to manipulate us with fear. The classic example was the Seralini rat study. I don't think there are many people who are truly chemophobic, but there's enough concern about chemicals to affect buying habits. Many consumers have the false impression that organic means no pesticides or that the naturally pesticidal chemicals that organic farmers are allowed to use are somehow necessarily safer than synthetic ones. They're not automatically safer and require the same oversight as do synthetic products. The marketers of organic products have no incentive to correct these public misperceptions and will continue to push the message that consumers wanting to be truly safe from chemicals need to buy organic.
by definition, that communicates that we can't trust the EPA regulatory process that's there to ensure that both the organic and non-organic pest controls for farmers are used in ways that are fully safe. The worst case scenario is that exaggerated concerns about chemicals induce people to eat less fruits and vegetables. Whether this qualifies as full-on chemophobia is academic. If people's diet choices are being distorted by disinformation, that represents a true public health challenge. Our best reason to be okay with chemicals that are used in our lives is that we do have regulators like the EPA, FDA, and OSHA. I've written before that these agencies are a bit like the comedian Rodney Dangerfield, who was always saying, I don't get no respect. From the political right, the agencies get accused of overregulation. From the political left, they are ignored or considered to be too lax. What I can tell you is that the EPA in particular gets a lot of respect from the pesticide part of the chemical industry. These companies fully accept the need for careful regulation, and as long as decisions and regulations are science-based and the agency is able to complete evaluations in a reasonable time frame, the industry is fully supportive of the process. So I guess what I'm saying is that there are certainly chemicals out there that are worthy of caution, including both natural and synthetic examples. But when it comes to concerns about pesticidal chemicals on our food, that is something that is being well handled, and we deserve to enjoy our food supply without fear. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.